So, gents, we're back on Zoom for another awesome episode of the Landlord Page podcast. And this week, we're going to be joined by Matt, who is actually the managing director of DPS, which stands for the Deposit Protection Service. The thing that landlords, you know, do need to remember, and and it's not doesn't always sit comfortably, is that it, it is the tenant's uh, deposit, um, and the landlord, uh, if they're making claim and that claim is disputed. It's the, the onus and responsibility is on the landlord to demonstrate their claim. So good inventories at check-in, good inventories at check-out, lots of fact-based evidence will ensure that you will be successful in your claim. Now, Matt has got a horde of data for us. So I'm looking forward to, as a bit of a data geek, looking forward to getting stuck into that. Um, and obviously, years worth of advice, looking at things from a letting agency point of view, a landlord and a tenant's perspective. So Tristan, I'll come to you first. What are you most looking forward to on this episode? Yeah, for me, um, there's a recent report about um, the disputes and what's been arisen over the years and what the most common reoccurring issues are. So it'd be fine. It'd be- exciting to find out what those are and how we resolve it as an industry uh, moving forward so be interested to hear to hear from himself with the stats that they've got uh, and go into the numbers and, and a bit more detail if you ever talk to someone that's thinking of becoming a landlord one of the things that often stops them is the, the fear factor um, so it'd be interesting to know what the percentages actually look like because he knows the truth um, so that will be exciting as well mike what about yourself yeah i think you, you just hit the nail on the head the the world and his wife's got a horror story about having their deposit taken away from them or not being able to claim on a tenant's deposit when it all goes wrong. Um, and, and, and from a letting agent's point of view, I, I don't see that. So it will be really interesting to, for him to actually give the facts rather than the, the old wives' tales that you hear. I also want to know where the DPS and the similar schemes are going in the future because the government's long-awaited white paper now two years out of date um talks about lifetime deposits so i want to see his opinions on things yeah i'm looking forward to this one let's get him on okay gents so we're here for another episode on the landlord podcast from the landlord page i'm really really excited to be joined with matt who is actually the managing director of DPS today. So we're going to talk about a really good service, which is obviously for tenants, landlords, and for estate agents to keep everyone safe and their money safe. Um, how are you, first of all, Matt? How are things? Yeah, we're, we're all good. Thank you very much. Uh, business is busy, which is great. Um, lots and lots of transactions flow in and out of the DPS on a daily day basis. So yeah, it keeps keeps all of the people involved in the DPS um, very busy most days. So, but it's good. Business is good. Thank you. Excellent. And for the people listening, um, we've obviously explained it, but from your perspective in the business, how would you describe the business that you're the managing director of? Yeah. So, uh, look, at the the DPS is um, one of three uh, government approved uh, deposit protection schemes, and yeah, quite simply. We run a service that enables landlords and letting agents uh, to de- uh, submit deposits on behalf of, uh, of their tenants to ourselves. We safeguard those deposits in our custodial scheme or for those um, landlords and letting agents who choose to use uh, an insured based scheme allows them to hold on to uh, those deposits in their own client money accounts. Um but affords the relevant protection under the legislation that's passed in the in the Housing Act uh, 2004. So effectively, we're holding that 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 deposit monies 
throughout the duration of the tenancy. And at the end of the tenancy, when the, the checkout occurs or the, uh, the, the tenancy ends, we repay that, that money in accordance with the uh, uh, agreement reached between the landlord and, and tenants. I know we're going to touch on it later, but it's incredible to think that it was ever done another way, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so just out of interest, really, why did you get into the property industry? Why did you become a property professional in, in this sector? Yeah, an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure I'd describe myself as a property professional, uh, if you like. Um, although I have been personally involved in the DPS since before the launch of the scheme, um, and the scheme launched in April 2007. Um, and I was involved in the original consultation that we undertook with government around that, um, and also the design of the scheme before before the schemes launched in uh, in April 2007. So in that 14-year period, I've, I have developed a pretty good understanding of the workings of the letting industry, let's say, um, and, of course, met some great characters along the way and, uh, you know, had a few lunches and, and the like with uh, people within the lettings industry, which has allowed me to build up a really, a really good, uh, strong network and understanding of what goes on in that industry. We are a special bunch. I will. I will <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've had some good lunches. <laughs> um, talking to lunch, that's a great plug for you, Tristan. Actually, um, I will. I will send over to yourself um, to start through the body of questions because I know you love a lunch as well. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Ian. So, um, jumping straight into it. Um, obviously, DPS is there to protect deposits, but but why is it important to tenants and landlords, um, not just the DPS, but similar schemes as well? Yeah. Look, I think first and foremost we're providing that deposit protection service on behalf of the government. And, and that, using those these services like the DPS, enables landlords and letting agents to comply with the relevant provisions, excuse me, relevant provisions of, of the Housing Act. So, you know, we're the original and largest provider of those uh, of that scheme um, across England and Wales. Um, we've, we currently protect around 1.8 million deposits. Um, and we do that by providing easy to use, transparent deposit protection for the lifetime of the tenancy. Uh, on top of that, there is a free-to-use dispute resolution service. And I, I know we'll probably talk about disputes um, later on in this, but again, it's a way to avoid uh, the sort of complex and expensive uh, legal proceedings that could occur um, at the end of the tenants, uh, tenancy if, if landlords and tenants can't agree. Um, we literally ha handle thousands of transactions every day Millions of landlords and letting agents and tenants um, are, are doing business with us over the last 14 years. Um, so it's important for us that that, that, that scheme and, and the way that people use the scheme is as easy as possible. Um, and, and that we provide a secure environment for those deposit monies to be held within. So everybody's got peace of mind. And when you look at um, things like Trustpilot and the like, you know, we've got a rating now of excellent 4.6 out of 5 currently on Trustpilot. So we're clearly doing something right and hopefully you know, our users will confirm that. So if someone was to use the DPS, what's the yeah. process in order for them to use your services and what services or what options do they have available um, when coming to you? Yeah, it's, um, it's really, really straightforward. Uh, if a landlord hasn't used our services before, the first thing they need to do is go to our website, depositprotection.com, and create an account pretty much like any other kind of e-commerce or you know retail type transaction you create your account we do some security checks um, around um, the, the landlord to ensure that you know they 
genuine individual and the like. And once that account is created, they can start to add properties. So you can create your entire property portfolio within the application. And then as you let those properties, uh, you can um, append tenant details uh, to that by simply updating the record and, of course, submit the deposit to us. And you can submit that deposit via a card payment, uh, again, online. Um, we do occasionally still receive the old check. Um, and some of our larger letting agents uh, also pay via, via back transfers on a bulk basis. Um, yeah, we're constantly challenging ourselves to um, make the, the DPS easy to do business with. So, you know, and deliver those services efficiently and, and, and as uh, accurately as possible. So that whole technology interface really helps us to do that. And again, the feedback that we get from our users um, suggests that it is very intuitive. It's very easy to, to use. So again, you come back to that. Once you've done your registration and created your login, created your properties, you know, you can then um, transact in terms of creating deposits. And then at the end of the tenancy, obviously go through the process to repay that deposit. And, and we repay through interaction with both the landlord and the uh, tenants as part of that process. And Matt, would you, would, what would be the sort of split? I don't know if it's a stat that you know, but what would be the split for lettings agents doing that part of the service on behalf of the landlord and, and kind of landlords doing it directly? Oh, yeah, you, you've got me there, Ian. I don't know that particular. I know we do have a number of letting agent clients who create those, um, if you like, records and tenancies on behalf of uh, landlords initially. And then the landlord themselves um, deals with the, uh, the, the the sort of exit process, if you like, the checkout. Um, but I think in the majority of cases where we've got a letting agent acting on behalf of a landlord, they tend to take care of both the submission and the repayment. So it's probably a minority. Having said that, we do have an awful lot of private landlords who use us directly themselves. So they may still be using an agent to to let the property, but then they take care of the, the deposit protection aspect themselves. Yeah, interesting stuff. Amazing to know that there's still checks arriving as well in this day. And age. Just the odd one, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I wrote a check, but anyway. Yeah, we still get the odd one from a solicitor as well for payment, which is always a, a mind boggler, but there we go. There might be payment do. soon. <laughs> yeah, the future. Mike's favourite, finding out how, how to bank a cheque in 2021 is getting harder and harder <laughs> to actually get someone yeah. to take it off your hands. Your banking app, you see, you know, if you can get it to take the photograph right, you can get it to bank. But, you know, I reckon it's a success rate of about two in 10 for me. <laughs> <laughs> so going on to um, deposits then, um, if someone... Obviously, the landlord's legally obliged to, to register a deposit. But talking about penalties, if someone doesn't yeah. register within the timescale, first of all, what is the timescale for those that don't know? And secondly, what's the penalty for, for not adhering to that? Yes, yeah, so it's all governed by the Housing Act 2004. And, and landlords uh, are responsible, although many obviously use an agent on their behalf. But landlords primarily have the responsibility that within 30 days of receiving a deposit, they must protect that deposit in a government authorised scheme such as the DPS. Um, the other thing that they must do is give a tenant a copy of something called the prescribed information. And prescribed information um, covers a, a number of points, mainly around the address of the property, the amount of the rent, uh, who's living in the property, i.e. The, the details of the tenants, the details of the landlord, and of course the details of the scheme. 
that that uh, particular deposit is uh, is registered within, so the name and registered address of that scheme. If they're using a custodial scheme, so that's the scheme where uh, the DPS would look after those monies on behalf of, uh, of the landlord and tenant, um, they must also provide a copy of the terms and conditions of that scheme as part of that prescribed information. Now, if you don't comply with those elements of the Housing Act, the penalties can be up to three times the amount of the deposit paid. So let's say you've got a thousand pound deposit, you could be facing a penalty for non-compliance of up to £3,000. Now, that penalty is handed out effectively um, by, uh, by a judge, by the courts, and they have discretion over how much uh, they award. And um, tenants would, in effect, have to instigate that court action if they felt their landlord had not complied um, with the uh, uh, w- with the terms of the Housing Act around deposit protection and prescribed information. I think the other point that's worth, that, that worth remembering is that landlords and agents can't serve Section 21 notices um, unless the deposit has been protected correctly or been returned to the tenant. And they can't where there's been uh, the, the prescribed information hasn't been properly served as well. So that's just another consideration as well as a penalty. You know, there are some constraints there on landlords and agents if they if they don't comply there's some great info there actually and i guess things like that for people listening you know future landlords current landlords property investors and the like have you got a lot of that information do you supply any of that information on your website and blogs and things like that exactly that ian yeah uh, we've got on depositprotection.com there's a whole heap of advice uh, available to landlords letting agents on there we have templates around prescribed information that can be downloaded. There is case studies in the learning center that, again, can help on you know setting up deposits initially, how you need to engage with your tenants. And, of course, lots and lots of advice about how to manage that tenancy and deal with checkout um, and the like at the end of the tenancy as well. Brilliant. Yeah, I'll check that out myself as well. It's such a simple process to do, like you said, even from registering to doing it. So... It, it's not hard to do. So anyone that's obviously looking to get into that, then do your research and obviously take a visit and, and have a look through that information. So for myself, and you've probably witnessed it witnessed it as well, this year has been probably one of the busiest years in my experience in property. And I'm sure you're starting to see some, some trends from your side with increased tenant numbers, spike in prices, or maybe longer tenancy terms. Has there been any trends from your side? Is there anything that, that maybe you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, look, first and foremost, I mean, the PRS is, is incredibly, private rental sector is incredibly resilient. And, you know, year on year, we, we've, seen, we've seen growth. Every year since we launched the schemes, we've seen, we've seen growth. One of the things that we have noticed, though, over the last, um, you know, sort of 18, 24 months, um, and whether this is influenced by, you know, the, the, the broader uh, COVID word, let's, let's use it, um, we don't know for sure, but We've seen uh, periods where there's been fewer repayments and closures of uh, deposits that we're looking after than we might have seen historically. Now, what we think is happening there is, and and the the data sort of suggests it, is that tenants are moving less frequently. So, you know, they're staying in properties for longer where they're happy and therefore, you know, those levels of repayments are are slightly lower than they were. Um, Something else that we, obviously we gather a huge quantity of data, but just purely based on the transactions and the volume of transactions that, that, we, that we manage. So 
One of the things that we produce uh, quarterly is, is something called the, the rent index report. And that rent index effectively um, indicates the sort of rental value by property type. And then we you know, take that at a national level, but we also then split it down into, into regional uh, information. And what we've seen there is that the, um, the number of deposits for detached properties actually fell um, uh, I new deposits coming into us fell by about 17% on the previous quarter. Again, backing up our belief that those tenants are just remaining in those properties for longer, and therefore we're not seeing the same volume of turnover in that space. Also, we're also seeing rents rise. And on average, we've seen nearly 9% on detached properties uh, in terms of rental value increase over the last year. Um, so, you know, that's well worth a look at. And you can see all those rent index reports, again, on the depositprotection.com website. Um, and you can look at the, some of the trend information on there. That's really good stuff, actually. And, Mike, we obviously talk a lot when, when we're talking to anyone about what would be the, 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 the best and safest asset that they could invest in from a property perspective. Invest in a family home. And, and the data there shows, Matt, that typically families are staying put for longer. Um, yeah, and because we, the prices have risen, we as bang well. a drum on that, don't we? Because we yeah. feel like, especially in the the location where we are in the southeast, with house prices being what they are, mm-hmm. um, there's something of a tenant trap where we are. If if you have children before you buy a house, it makes it very difficult to save for a house. So, yeah. if you're in a family home and you're happy with your primary school, I think less less people are relocating for work now because you can get a job the other side of the country and work from home. More people are staying in the same place as long as they're happy with it. And as you said, the, the, the huge rise in rents on, on housing, on houses specifically, is kind of reflecting that there's a lot of people who want those houses, but those who are in them aren't, aren't going to give them up. Yeah, and it, I think almost. yeah, and the the other thing we we we've definitely seen is we've seen an increase in the volume of lets coming from rural locations versus city centre locations. I mean, the city centres have come back um, a bit, um, well, probably quite a lot. You know, really back to sort of pre-pandemic levels, if you like, in the last quarter. Um, but certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw an awful lot of. Um, business coming into us that was from rural locations and again larger properties people looking for more space probably working from home probably after a bit of outdoor space so you know the, the demand for that type of property as you say is is absolutely there yeah we we've seen the same uh, ripple i call it the ripple out from london um with the sales market as well yeah, uh, and what's yeah, quite sure. interesting is i think stamp duty holiday although it was obviously for sellers what it did do is it gave people the ability to let to buy. Um, so they would rent their properties out and they would yeah. move into the coast or wherever it may be, which which is probably dictated by that trend there as well, I would have mm-hmm. thought. I saw an article actually that, um, I can't remember what newspaper it was in, but the people are regretting their move out of London. Not all of their friends moved away from London. <laughs> they don't want to be out in the nice fresh air. And actually there's a lot of people thinking of returning. So it'd be interesting to see what that trend does over the next 12 months. The grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. I, I don't see it'll have much impact personally um, with all the transport links that we have within our locations, especially going into London and how quickly you can get there. Um, I, I don't see it having much impact on us, but those further afield, like you said, on the coast, and that may may have different opinions, so, although I'd rather be sat in Bournemouth than, than in London, <laughs> but each to their own. <laughs> Um, so a recent report come through um, 
it's literally a couple of months ago actually that uh, began disputes and the biggest number one talked about thing was end of tenancy cleans has been flagging up um, followed by damage and redecoration in your experience from what you've witnessed previously and recently would you say this sounds about right and is there any case studies maybe you could share with us yeah um look we've um We've we looked at some data over the past four years, and yeah, cleaning is the number one um, the number one reason for deductions being claimed at the end of tenancies. Um, and we see roughly twenty three percent of all claims made relate to cleaning. Um, damage is is number two, um, but slightly different. We see rent arrears as as number three reason for for seeking a, a claim at the end of a tenancy. In about seventeen percent of cases, we'll see a, a rent arrears claim. What I would say, though, is that um, you know, there are still a huge number of, um, of, of tenancies that are, are exited without any claims or any deductions. So there's a lot of good tenants out there and a lot of good landlords looking after those guys. Um, but, yeah, there are. Cleaning is number one. Um, I think, you know, in terms of case studies, again, you know, we've got some case studies that are published on the, um, uh, on the website. But what I would say is you know, there's a couple of amusing little anecdotes. I mean, we've had... Um, you know, people submit mobile phones to us um, with pictures uh, embedded within the mobile phone. Talking of which, there goes a mobile phone. Um, hey, hands and, up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 even a charger with that mobile phone, so that we could charge it up to to, to see the uh, the photos that somebody had taken of the condition of the property at the end of it. Um, we had somebody send us a tap once, uh, which was you know, covered in lime scale. And the reason they sent us the tap was to demonstrate that the, the the tenant hadn't taken good enough care of the bathroom. So I'm not quite sure what, the bath- what condition of the bathroom was without the tap. But anyway, these are the sorts of fun things that we get when we get a, a dispute or where we get a, a claim being made and, a, and a, a landlord sort of substantiating that claim. Several times we've had sections of carpet sent to us with stains on them. So, you know, all good fun. And the key, okay. key thing for landlords or for tenants listening, um, in its in its simplicity, is there's a third party reviewing these. So it's not A versus B. You know, there's someone in the middle to split it and look at it from, I guess, a bit of common sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, what we have is we have that free to use uh, independent and it's totally independent. We have no, you know, we have no interest whatsoever in, you know, who gets what, as it were. Um, all we simply are, are doing is we're reviewing the evidence that's provided to us, be that pictures, be that check-in reports, be that checkout reports, be that photographs, whatever it might be. We're reviewing that in the context of the claim that's made. Um, and if, if, the, if the information provided to us substantiates the claim, then clearly we will, we will find um, an award that claim. Um, conversely, if, you know, if, if there is a lack of, um, of evidence to support a claim, then, you know, the, uh, the, the, it's unlikely to be successful. I think the thing that landlords, you know, do need to remember, and, and it's not, doesn't always sit comfortably, is that it is the tenant's uh, deposit. Um, and the landlord, uh, if they're making claim and that claim is disputed, it's the, the onus and responsibility is on the landlord to demonstrate their claim. So good inventories at check-in, good inventories at checkout, lots of fact-based evidence will ensure that you will be successful in your claim. I think the main thing to say, or one of the main things to say, is please don't send the actual broken item. 
yeah. into the PS. <laughs> Uh, from I've never heard of it. People actually sending the broken yeah, yeah. tablet. Either. I'm sure. I'm sure a photo of it would suffice. Yeah, with, <laughs> Otherwise, the office would be would... an interesting place. Yeah. Um, and and secondly, you, you mentioned it. I think it's probably something that Tristan's going to speak on in more detail. But um, detailed inventories are, are, are a massively important thing because it is the tenant's money that the tenant is putting down, and and. So many times I've had landlords with a bee in their bonnet coming from other agencies saying, oh, well, I, I couldn't claim my agent didn't defend me and, and, and my particular deposit service found against me because the tenants had been there for 15 years and the carpet was ruined at the end of the tenancy. So well, firstly, the tenant was there for 15 years. So the lifespan of that carpet is what? Eight, I think, is 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 your advice. Something along those re- re- reasons. Um, and secondly, what proof did you have of the changing condition? I said, well, yeah. it was fine when they moved in. Yeah, um, is a kind of typical response I would get. So yeah. I know this; these things are sort of always got two sides of them. But it'd be interesting to know if if, if you know the, the the percentage that you go in favour of a landlord or the percentage of cases that you go in favour of a tenant because everyone, everyone seems to, and this is quite a, a, a contentious point because we're on the landlord podcast, mm-hmm. I reckon mm-hmm. more landlords make bad claims than tenants on deposits. Yeah, look, I think you go back to the, the, the point, which is the landlord has to make a claim against the deposit. Um, a, a tenant doesn't make a claim against the deposit. Mm. It's their deposit. They'll be looking for it to, to get it back, obviously. But if the landlord wants to make a deduction, they have to make a, a claim against that deposit. And what what we see is we do see you know, roughly 50, 55% of all deposits are repaid in totality back to the to the tenant. Then we we see a rough split of around, you know, sort of 20, 22% is split between landlord and tenant. So there's an agreed position and it's split. And then we see roughly around 22%, which is uh, being returned in full to a landlord. So for whatever reason, a landlord is, is making a claim and receiving the full value of that deposit back now. You know, why that is, we really only determine that where there's a dispute. Um, so if there's a, you know, the, the reason for deduction is agreed between landlord and tenant, then you know, that's, that's not for us to, to interfere with. So while we're on that uh, subject, then, so fair wear and tear should be taken into consideration when looking to make deductions from deposits. And I think there's mm. there's some landlords out there that that probably favour it more than others uh, in their favour. But but what should be considered when taking that into consideration? And what advice can you give to landlords that that need to take fair wear and tear into consideration? Yes, yeah, so I think firstly, you know, let's just talk about the sort of definition of fair wear and tear and and. Fair wear and tear effectively is the deterioration of the condition of a property or a fixture of fitting due to reasonable use. Okay, so, okay, there's some subjectivity in there straight away, but yeah, broadly, that's what you're, you're working around. And fair wear and tear is that principle that it will wear over time. So some landlords will mistakenly believe they can make a claim, you know, as you sort of suggested earlier, for a carpet that's 15 years old because it wasn't returned to them in the condition when it was first let so you you've got to be mindful of you know what is reasonable what is fair wear and tear and if that is fair wear and tear and you believe the use is reasonable then is it likely you're going to be successful or or be able to make a claim 
Um, the other thing that we see a bit of is something that we, we call betterment, where um, a landlord or, or will seek to make a claim uh, for the value of, let's, let's say, um, a, a, a fixture of fitting, say, for example, a fridge, and it's a cheap fridge that they put into the property, and they're trying to make a claim based on a much higher standard uh, of, of fixture of fitting. And again, you know, that's betterment. And you can only make claim for um, the, uh, the, the item that, if you like, that, that, that's there, that's in there, and, 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 and respective of, of that, that, uh, that item. What we would say is, you know, to a certain extent, put yourself in the, uh, in the, in the sort of feet of, um, of the tenant. And how would you feel? How would you feel objectively if that claim was presented to you as a tenant? You know, would they be happy to pay the full cost of replacement of that carpet if they'd only lived there for three years? Uh, or if that carpet was, you know, well used before they even arrived into the property? So I think what happens is tenants will dispute landlords' claims because they feel they're excessive or they feel they're unreasonable. And in our experience, a tenant is far more likely, and the stats produce, you know, the stats back that up. We we see plenty of claims made by landlords that are not disputed by tenants. But a tenant's more likely to agree that claim if they believe it accurately reflects both the condition of the property, condition of the item that's that the claim is being made against, and, and is reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, reasonable. And obviously that there's we touch back on the inventory, you know, that's just a massive, a massive help in the whole scenario because it, it, it shows the before and after, doesn't it? And yep. you can't yep. argue with that then. Yeah. So if someone can't come to a mutual agreement of a deduction between tenant mm-hmm. and landlords, what's the process of a tenant getting their money back? And do they, do they have an option to get their money back? Can you go into this in a bit more detail? Yeah, for sure. So, look, I think first, firstly, you know, if, uh, in respect of an, an amount of, of, um, of a deposit that isn't subject to claim, you will pay that back to the tenant, you know, even though there may be a disputed amount still, um, still in, still in play. So let's say again, thousand pound deposit, um, 800 pounds of that is, you know, agreed to be repaid back to the tenant. We, we would pay that money back to that tenant at that point in time. With respect to the amount that the claim is being made against, you know, firstly, a tenant can agree to that claim, um, or they can make an alternative suggestion, and they can do that via our website. So they log into our website and they, yeah, you know, I agree with the claim being made, or actually, I don't agree with two hundred pounds. I think it should be hundred pounds, whatever it might be. And in a lot of cases, we'll find that landlords and tenants effectively come to an agreement through uh, through the portal um, in terms of uh, suggesting uh, amounts for deduction and then agreeing on a final amount. And once that agreement is reached, we obviously then pay away the proportion of that disputed amount in, in accordance with the uh, agreement reach. Yeah. If they can't reach an agreement, though, that's where um, the dispute service that we offer uh, comes into play. Um, both parties must agree to use that dispute service, and effectively what, they're, what we ask them to do is submit evidence to, to support the claim that they're making. And they've got 14 days from the point that they agree to use the dispute service um, to submit that, that evidence to us. And typically, we get sent um, digital images, digital documentation. Um, so it's all pretty much online, save for the odd piece of carpet and cap that comes through the post, of course. <laughs> um, and what, what, what happens is our adjudicators, who are legally trained 
um, and many of them come from um, a property background as well. Those adjudicators will review the evidence that's been submitted. They'll review the claim that's being made. They'll um, they'll they'll then make a recommendation in terms of um, how that dispute should be settled, and um, effectively that decision becomes binding. And we we seek to make all of those decisions within twenty eight days of um, of the of it going into that dispute. Now, it's probably worth saying that less than three percent of all of the deposits that we manage and, and pay back end up in a dispute where an adjudicator has to has to get involved. So that again, most of the time, tenants and landlords demonstrate, you know, given that we literally manage hundreds of thousands of these things on an annual basis, um, tenants and landlords are pretty good at coming to an agreed position at the end of tenancies. That 3% is an interesting statistic, actually. Yeah. Um, do you think there's going to be sort of lifetime deposits in the near future? Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah I'm sure you know, most of your listeners and, and yourselves will be aware, you know, the, the government has talked um, a lot about commitment around lifetime deposits and the, 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 the term lifetime has been, has been used. And, you know, we're obviously very interested in the idea of a deposit being able to transfer from one property to another under the same uh, tenant's name and, and, and the like. And we have been involved with government and with other broader industry um, uh, bodies, uh, other, t- other tenancy deposit protection providers as well, to talk about how that proposal might work in practice. Um, and I think it, what's really important is that any proposal uh, under, under consideration ensures that, that the interests of all parties, i.e. landlords and tenants, are protected throughout. And I think where it becomes most problematic is is at the end of the tenancy where you might have um, somebody wishing to leave a property. They've yet to go through a checkout routine. They've yet to satisfy, you know, the last month's rent, whatever it might be. Um, And yet they want to go and secure the next property. And it's that sort of overlapping arrangement at the end that I think is the, is the element that is good is, sort of um, creating the, 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 the difficulty in terms of practicality and ensuring that everybody's interests are protected throughout. Um, we, we definitely think, though, it's a problem that can be solved. And we do believe that as, as the largest provider of, of tenancy deposit protection solutions in the UK, that we've got a role to play and, and provide support to landlords, tenants, uh, and indeed government uh, to, to, to make that solution work. Yeah, I think it it feels like it's something that people uh, or the government want to put in place. But coming from the the industry, I don't understand how they're going to do it. Um, So it's going to need the DPS, TDS, my deposits to to lead that, in my opinion, and say, yes, it's possible. And this is how it's possible. Or no, absolutely not. and, And provide a line almost on behalf of the letting agents, because as an agent, as a landlord, and as a former tenant, I see all, all, all angles of it, that me renting number one High Street and then moving to number one Rowley Drive, I see that as two, there's two totally separate transactions with two totally different landlords. So I can't just port one deposit to the next before I've closed off my, my yeah. previous tenancy. But I also yeah. get it as a tenant. You've got one deposit locked up here 
do you have the funds to then post another deposit um, in the short term? Um, and and I'm, I'm quite public about it. I'm not a massive fan of zero deposit schemes personally. I, as an agent, as a landlord, I much prefer people to physically put down some collateral, some capital against what they're doing um, because I feel like it, it, it gives them some involvement on it. Yeah, um, I like it. I, I agree with you on all of those points, and it is that it is that period, that overlap period, um, that is the the problem we need to solve. We've got some ideas around it, um, and we continue to discuss those with government um, and other parties around the industry. Um, and and like I think it is, you know, if we can if we can if we can come up with a solution um, that is affordable. That, that is practical, that's easy to understand and use, then I think it would be good because I think you will drive um, perhaps uh, you know, shorter, uh, shorter vacant periods. Uh, you'll get you know, easier transitions from one letter to another. So I think it would be good for the industry, it'd be good for tenants, good for letting agents and landlords. Um, but we need to come up with a solution that is you know, practical and easy to understand. And as you say, you know, I th- I bl- I'm, I'm with you. I, I also think you know, cash is... Um, is really un- well understood. Uh, it provides that collateral for everybody, and you know it's there. Um, and I think it's also a lot easier for tenants to understand the risk, if you like, versus perhaps some of the risks that that they might not necessarily fully appreciate in a in a deposit replacement style scenario. So the two final questions. One of them is very much with your DPS hat on. One of them is very much personal opinion. DPS-wise, you've already said you're one of the best places to get stats from. What, <laughs> happen, what happens next, though? Yeah. Well, like, uh, it's really hard isn't it, to say what happens next, but I, one thing we do know for sure, you know, is, and I said it earlier, is how resilient the private rented sector is and how you know, we continue to see growth uh, in that area and we, in, the, in that sector, and we're seeing it year on, year out. And the rent index that we report, again, shows that that consistent growth is there. It's uh, rents are rising across all property types, across all regions, you know, year on year. And frankly, we see no reason why that trend doesn't continue over at least the medium term. Um, you know, there's strong demand uh, for rental properties. Uh, lots of stuff is written down about um, more, more tenants or, or prospective tenants than there are rental properties. So, you know, we see nothing but good things and a strong performance from the private rental sector over the coming years. And coming from you, if a property owner comes to you as the MD of the DPS for one piece of advice, what do you give them? Um, I, quite simply, look after your property. Um, we, it's, a, it's, an, it's an asset, it's your asset. And so whilst you may let it, look after it because... I think a well-maintained property, it firstly, is attractive to a prospective tenant, um, and that will make it easier to let, and, and likely a longer let will come from it. I think a well-maintained, well-looked-after property, tenants are probably going to uh, be happier in them. They're likely to um, respecting that property. And, you know, you never know, they might even pay the rent on time, yeah, which, which would be great. And, and finally, I think a well-maintained property will give you a, a strong rental value um, and rental yield um, for, for years to come. So, you know, for me, it's, it's a simple one. It's, it's look after your properties. 
great advice and, and matt thank you so much for coming on our podcast i've i've really enjoyed this and there's been some really interesting data i wasn't expecting to get um and i'm a bit of a data geek so i appreciate that um <laughs> you get on the rent most, index have a look at that you'll love that <laughs> i'll be i'll be on there i'll be looking at it tonight when the kids are friday night lights so <laughs> <laughs> rock and roll in my house on a thursday um <laughs> so yeah Appreciate your time. And I would say to anyone that's listening, do go and check that out, um, depositprotection.com. Obviously, there's going to be some really good information on there. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for your time and your advice to everyone that's listening as well, because it's been very valuable. And um, I'm sure we will speak again in the near future. So appreciate your time, Matt. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So Matt's just left us and um, another podcast where I've just, I'm making notes in these podcasts, just um, like it's going out of fashion at the moment, because there's so much good value in there, so much good content in there. Hopefully people listening have taken the same. And if, if people are struggling, maybe new or future landlords are struggling, struggling to digest some of this, please, please reach out to us, um, comment, um, get in contact with us. And we'd love to have conversations on a one-on-one level with some of our listeners that, that just want a little bit more information and clarity on, on some of the high level stuff that we're talking about. Um, for me on that particular one, and I mentioned it at the start of the podcast, what I was looking forward to, which, which Mike kind of um, elaborated on as well, is, is the scare that's out there the fear that's out there for people that have got horror stories and to actually hear that less than three percent of disputes actually go to the final level of arbitration by the arbiters that's quite an interesting statistic because it it, if you were talking to people outside and everyone's got an opinion people would make out that that's much much higher mike wouldn't they yeah absolutely um it's the it's it's always the age old. Oh, I never got my deposit back, or my landlord to my deposit, or my landlord can't get any deposit back to repair things. To be honest, it's it's a little bit rubbish. Um, the the percentages of deposits that are given back in full is massive, and the agreements that are made once things go um, past there about any deductions takes up the vast vast majority of the rest of the tenancies out there um, because landlords protect themselves with facts and tenants do exactly the same thing and if the facts present themselves then it might take a few rounds but once the facts have presented themselves you can make an agreement and everyone can move on quickly and we only really deal with um people that do it the right way we know there is a a small segment of rogue out there should we say and um well obviously we can't talk on behalf of them but if you do the right thing and the legal thing then as you can see the statistics are very very low for problems which is good to see um tristan i know you were looking forward to this one what 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 kind of information did you digest that that stood out for you from from matt's chat yeah, a couple of bits for me. Um, the first one is backs up with how the market's been. They've seen an uplift of rental prices of around eleven, uh, sorry, nine percent, which just shows the sheer volume. One increased numbers, and two, the the increased rent that's happening, and that comes from a, a busy rental market that we've experienced over the last sort of twelve months or so. Um, on top of that, are the the three main causes of disputes, which was already aware of some of them, but they're all just slightly different. First one being a clean, followed by damage, and then arrears being the third. Um, so, yeah, quite surprised by that. 
Yeah, interesting stuff. Well, that's another podcast. I'm off to the depositprotection.com to uh, digest and geek out on some of their statistics. Um, obviously, looking forward to next week's as well. And uh, gents, good to see you on Zoom. Hopefully, we'll be allowed back into a face-to-face podcast soon. But for the time being, it's working well. And thanks to everyone that's listened or watched on YouTube. And we'll see you all again next week. I'm flicking through YouTube and through Spotify. I don't think there's a podcast or a video channel on YouTube that landlords can land on where they're not being sold something. I mean, it'd be the first time any estate agents ever asked that question, but why not ask that question to a wider audience? They just have the knowledge there, but they don't seem to share it. You can do different episodes based around someone that wants an exit plan or someone that's just starting their portfolio. The rules change every year. Yeah. But why not just open the floor out and just say, well, is property even the best investment out there? And tax advice is a big thing, especially with everything that's changed, capital gains tax, and obviously your stamp duty costs that you need to pay and whatnot. People don't realise what they need to prepare for. We build a podcast, we build a YouTube channel, somewhere that landlords can go and they feel they're not being sold to, but they're just getting quality advice.